This is Aliens and Artists, part one of our conversation with Jeremy Corbell. I'm your host, Stuart Davis. Jeremy Corbell is an accomplished martial arts teacher, a filmmaker, and a successful avant-garde artist. His films include Patient 19, Hunt for the Skinwalker, and The Watershed, Bob Lazar. Although his work is widely known, his personal story is not. In our two-part talk, Corbell shares a number of astonishing experiences he's never spoken about before. Yes, now he's renowned for making movies and breaking stories. But before all that... But before all of that, I was not even into this stuff, really. Um, my interest was, was peaked when I was 13 years old. I like to consider myself kind of a nuts and bolts kind of guy. It's just the way my, my mind works. I don't dismiss things that I don't know about, but I don't know about a lot of things like chakras or you know vegan food. <laughs> I'm learning all of that stuff. So my, my predisposition is more, I would just say nuts and bolts. And so when I was 13 years old, I heard on the radio a description of a man who came forward. It was 1989. And he said that his name was Bob Lazar, and he expressed th this way that a propulsion system allegedly worked. And immediately upon hearing that, I like to say my curiosity was weaponized, meaning I, I was not a passive consumer. I was an active participant. I, I couldn't put it down. It was, it was fascinating. The way Lazar described distance and the traveling of distance at that time in 1989, the world was still allergic to the idea that extraterrestrials even existed, despite the Drake equation, despite the, the, the vast universe ever expanding to our perception because we're just learning more about it. Yeah. At that time, there was a real allergy in general to the topic of UFOs or extraterrestrials. It just was. It was a different world. But the big problem for me was the universe may be vast and there might be intelligent civilizations that have had more time than us here in our little space in the galaxy to essentially develop and how could they be getting here and upon hearing the way lazar described the gravity amplification system and knowing a little bit about how time and space and gravity all influence one another the concept of reactionless propulsion, of literally bending space and time towards an individual. And he described it back then as I had a child's mind. You put a bowling ball on a mattress, push your fist down on that mattress, and the bowling ball falls into place. So this concept flipped my script about how an advanced civilization could indeed instantaneously be traveling vast distances. So of course, it was George Knapp that broke that story. So he was just a name at the time to me, and I was 13. So there I was, fascinated by this, but I was consumed by my art form, which was martial arts, jujitsu. So from the age of nine years old, uh, all the way up actually until 2004, which is when I got an illness, my whole life changed, I was dedicated to developing my abilities. I was not the best fighter. I was a good competitor. I was not the best fighter. I was always the smallest kid. So. It was a challenge for me to learn in the immediate moment how to overcome an obstacle with proper skill and technique compared to just 
the will, the power of will. So that was my lesson for many years, and I'm thick-headed. It took me a long time to learn it, but I eventually did. I did learn it, that what we do and how we do it, if we have proper technique, we can be more efficient, and you learn it immediately in martial arts, where in conversations or Twitter fights, you don't learn it because nobody gets punched. But in jiu-jitsu, if you claim something and you can't perform it, you know immediately because you're choked out. So that was kind of the incubator in a way that I guess I apply to the rest of my life, this new you know, incarnation of how I'm spending my energy. Mm-hmm. So that was the moment to, to be clear that I first got inspired about this strange topic that includes UFOs. And of course, in the martial arts tradition, you have a lot of extraordinary claims. And and I put myself into those situations to see, was there any truth to them? I mean, traveled the world, would spin the globe, put my finger down. I mean, I was way smarter back then, making more money than I ever was teaching jujitsu. So I could go anywhere, pre-corona, and seek out these mystics and these individuals and and really in, investigate their their claims physically, you know, just get to know for myself and took me all around the world, all around the world. And it was amazing. And uh, some of the extraordinary claims were, in my mind, legitimized, but the majority were not. So to make this kind of brief, because this could go in many directions, where I find myself here today. I, I thought I would never do anything other than be a martial athlete. That was it. That was my life. And I guess I'll tell you something I've never really told anybody because no one's really, I don't think anybody's really asked it like you asked it, I guess. Uh, what changed for me was I saw my whole life ahead of me. I had a, a beautiful girlfriend, had a dog, had this house on the beach. I mean, things were good, man. Um, had schools all around the world could do anything I wanted. And and I looked at my life and I said, okay, I see the end of it now. It's beautiful. It's mapped out. It's an amazing life. And I said out loud, which is weird, but I did. And I said, you know, all right, if this is my life and I'm right about it and this is, you know, my path and there's nothing else I need to express in my life to just get better at this, so be it. But if there is something else that I could apply myself to that, that is important for my life, you know, say now or forever hold your peace. And wow, I mean, you ask a question out loud. <laughs> holy shit. Holy shit. You know, I mean, that's really how I summarize it. But w- what essentially happened is I was kind of identified and so wrapped up in this concept of what I was, was based upon what I did or who I was, was based upon what I did. I I believe that wholeheartedly. I am a martial athlete. I am a warrior. This is who I am. You know, I teach this stuff as I learn this stuff, you know. And then there I was trying to escape my own identity, just walking around randomly. I said, where can I get a ticket? I was in Thailand teaching uh, martial arts and studying, as you always do when you teach. And I, I asked a ticket agent, where can I get an immediate visa, go somewhere, just not here, just anywhere where I, I won't run into any student, which is the 
fucking hilarious part of the story, you know, but it was just trying to escape and, and just see, you know, wh- who am I if not all these things people say I am? Yeah. So there I was, find myself in Nepal, right? It's like the, they said, you can go to Nepal. I'm like, who? They're like, Nepal. I'm like, I don't know who, who, where that is. And they're like, okay, well, here's a ticket. <laughs> you know? And I have this extraordinary ability. It's happened to me three times where I enter a country during a, a, a moment of absolute chaos and riots. And, and that happened to me. Megawati, uh, I'm sorry, that, that's another one. That was, that, that was in Bali. Um, but this is in, in Nepal. There were, there were bombings that day. And all foreigners were being checked at that point uh, because of this mass bombing that occurred. But I find myself in Nepal walking around just trying to exist in a different way. And, uh, you know, odds have it so strange. I'm in the middle of this temple deep in the forest. I followed, met, met some like Buddhist kids and this one guy took me out and was in the middle of this forest where like these tigers are or something. There's this old temple. And this kid goes, hey, sensei. And like, it was like one of my students in Nepal. It's like, I couldn't leave, you know, I couldn't leave. Oh my God. It was, it was a cosmic joke. It was this dark hallway at like midnight in this temple in the middle of nowhere. Uh, so it was just bizarre. And then, then I got sick. Then, then all of a sudden there I am and I'm, I happen to go, I mean, just tell me if you want the short version, but this is kind of weird. So I should tell you probably. Oh no, it's okay. This is great. All right. So, so I, I happened to go to next stop was was Pune, India. I heard about this mystic guru that was kind of evil and good, you know, this dualistic guy named Osho. And wow, I wanted to 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 go to his weird, crazy compound and kind of investigate it. You know, I was an investigator always. Yeah. And it was a bizarre, yeah. bizarre place. And, and and really sights were set on me by the by this bizarre leader of, of, of what I would call a cult at the time. I mean, just wild. And I happened at that time to be laying in a bed and I started to hear voices of of people that no longer were living. And it was like this reality check, like all of a sudden, I I just kind of put my hands next to me and I felt, and my bed was was sopping wet with with, with sweat. And I, I realized, holy shit, I don't know when I, how long I've been in this room. So all of a sudden, I kind of stumble to kind of the people that are there. And I'm like, I think something's wrong, I remember saying. And then, boom, I pass out. I'm down, kind of wake up, and someone's slapping me. And apparently, I, they were furious. I had a I had a temperature and didn't know. It was 105 in my armpit. Oh, my God. So it's like 107 in your brain. So I had sustained this prolonged fever for days. And I guess I was dehydrated. I mean, this is out. Of, I just kind of woke up into this situation. And last thing I know, I get this injection in my butt, and it was like they, they just like hit me with this needle. It's a clear liquid, and it felt like somebody just pulled my head out of a dunking tank. Like all of a sudden, I was back. What the fuck just happened? And to give you a little context, I I, I wouldn't go to the hospital because just uh, just prior, I I was in in um, Varanasi. Do you know Varanasi? I don't. Okay, it's it's the city of death and dying in India. It's a place where people go in the karmic tradition of India. I, I'm not into any of this stuff, but I just happen to choose, oh, let me go there. It happens to be the city of death and dying. Good choice, Jeremy. I'm always in the wrong place at the right time. So it's on the Ganges, but it's like, it, it's where if you die in Varanasi, 
you do not have to go through the cyclical repeat of reincarnation in that faith. So anybody with an infectious disease or illness are just trying to get there. I mean, you know, bodies everywhere, everywhere. And, Is that and, the famous charnel grounds where a set of mystics live among the dead bodies and smoldering ashes? And yes, okay. consume them. And yes, yes, yes. That is one sect, one small cult, actually a sect within, you know, the Hindu faith and so, or system. So yes. And so, so look, it's a really interesting place. I, I literally, I'm always at the wrong place at the right time. That's how I get shit done. There I am. And what happens is this, this girl, there were not many foreigners. Again, it was like off season or something. So you kind of recognize like when you see like a crying girl who's, you know, from the West, you know? So I saw her and she tells me this elaborate story that her friend, her companion had been poisoned by some tea and was being held in a hospital against her will. And the only reason I believed her was because someone tried to do that to me. A guy that I had spent a few days with, he was kind of showing me around, translating for me, a fixer, right? He he tried to poison me. <sighs> and and I, I, have, I had no evidence or proof of this. I just, I heard it. It was one of those times in my life where you almost feel like you can hear it in, in, your, in your head. Mm-hmm. And it was, I, I just out of total social, out of context to put my hand on his chest, push him against the wall. I was like, Trust needs to be earned. I'm not drinking your tea. You know, this is a hospital. This is a hospitable situation, right? Spent yeah. days with this guy. I just knew it. I had no proof, but man, I was shaken. So when she told me, I knew it was true. So I went to the hospital. She kept, one of the girls kept saying, my dad is this famous politician. You're, the embassy's coming. I'm like, oh man, this girl's crazy. What am I doing? At, at India, there's not a lot of guns in India, but at gunpoint, we, we got this girl out of her bed. And at the moment that they had the 8K-47s in the hospital, by the way, this embassy from, from Britain come, rolls up, and this girl was not kidding. And we became good friends. I took the girls, uh, went, went with the ladies, and we went um, to, to Delhi. But this is why I'm – so I was suspicious of the medical system. So can you imagine? I'm at this cult retreat kind of cult place. The the head of it now is already giving me eyes, like really telling me to, you know, weird stuff, like single me out. And I, all of a sudden I get sick like this. You know, I'm not going to the hospital. You know, I'm freaked out, right? Yeah. Well, turns out they said, well, you got a different kind of bacteria. Give me antibiotics. You're fine. Happened three more times, three more times where I'm, I'm hallucinating from fever. I didn't know what was wrong. So I finally look in the mirror and I, I look at myself and I had lost 35 pounds and I look like death. And I, I called my family and I said, look, I, I need to get home right now to a hospital, like a real one. This is not working. And I got on a flight and I made it back and I got to special disease, UCLA. Come to find out, uh, they later told me I had a 2% chance of survival. That's not good. <laughs> uh, valley fever is what I had. I had inhaled. Uh, spores in, in like they think either a farmland in Nepal because of the incubation period or in a bat cave in Thailand just before. And I had harbored it in my body. Now, I've never met but one survivor of valley fever because most people just think they got a fever. You can get it in California. You got a fever. That's it. You never get diagnosed. People do, do get diagnosed. It's usually because their lungs have been corrupted. Like they're really – people usually die. So I was one of those weirdos where – all of a sudden, not only did I survive it, but they found out at UCLA, like it had attacked each of my organs, spread through my lungs. I was sicker than I realized. Like I was out of it, man. And it turns out 
that uh, had been in my, I had maintained it in my blood system even. So it was like this miracle thing that I'm alive. But so at this point, my whole life changed. I'm, I'm in LA. I'm going to open my biggest school ever of martial arts, new phase, right? And my identity was completely stripped away from me. I, I don't know how bet, to better describe it unless you've lived it. But the association between what you do and who you are was completely pulled. That plug was pulled. And it was painful. It was a painful experience. I was lost. And at that time, out of the insanity of these fevers, I mean, just I, I met my wife at that time and she, you know, was there with me for some of it. I, I get these high spiking fevers. My body would tremble. It went on for a while. I got better, but I, I could only kind of walk, you know, just walk. I couldn't fight, compete, flips, kicks, punches, wrestle, none of that. I mean, I was a ghost. And at the time, I started seeing a neighborhood I had grown up on because I was teaching for 10 years up in Santa Cruz, University of Santa Cruz before this. So I'm, in, I'm back in my old stomping ground in Los Angeles. I see all these buildings that are being torn apart, just demoed. And I, I looked at them, so I started sneaking in and grabbing these old 1920s windows or 1940s windows, bringing them back to my garage, which was going to be my private training studio, right? Took down the heavy bag and started making, I guess, what you would call art. And, and I didn't know I was making art. I, I started just completely disassembling. I, I bought six computers with my last you know, few thousand bucks, six, you know, these old computers and and I started taking them apart screw by screw, bolt by bolt, you know, wire by wire and trying to see how they work. And then I installed them into doors, put sound and imagery and put them all up around me. And then it's like all of a sudden, four months later, there I am sitting in this little garage that opens right up onto Montana Avenue in Santa Monica. And this guy walks in, nobody walks in, this guy walks right in and he goes, are you an artist? And I got like angry and I'm like, I'm a martial artist, <laughs> you know? <laughs> He's like, well, did you make this? I'm like, yeah. And he's like, have you shown it? And I'm looking at him like, this guy's fucking crazy. I'm like, what are you talking about? Have you shown it? Like in a gallery? I'm like, no. He's like, do you want to? <laughs> and I was, so that was my first no show. And I was like, okay. You know, like, so I thought I, I thought it was the biggest scam, the biggest joke ever. All of a sudden, so I'm an artist in LA and like hundreds of people came to my first show and the next one, thousands of people came and, I, and I'm making tons of money. And I'm like, what the <laughs> fuck? I can't even draw a stick figure. What the fuck? And I'm like, well, okay, look, if I'm not a martial athlete anymore and someone else wants to call me an artist or a photographer, okay, fine. <laughs> Go ahead. It's fun. You know, show my work, you know? Um, so that was weird. And... <laughs> It, it was also just a phase, but it, it really grew out of proportion in, in my, you know, like jujitsu. I, was, I wasn't the best fighter. I wasn't like, you know, Muhammad Ali, I'm the greatest fighter of all time. But he wasn't, you know, with his record. And with martial arts, like, sure, I was really good at teaching. I admit that, you know, um, but that's because I was really bad at jujitsu. So like, you'd have to learn all the ways not to do it. So that's why I was probably good at teaching. So sitting there thinking, okay. Am I an artist now? And then all of a sudden, it grew out of proportion. I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. I, I don't get it. But maybe I can kind of use this to explore my passions. And it, it was at that moment when I decided to get uh, – my wife and I decided to get married. And one of my friends gave me a camera. 
a camera, like a five, Canon 5D. It was like the really first great consumer handheld film quality camera, which I still use to this day, Mark II even. And I just, it was like, I just realized, like all of a sudden I look at this camera and I remember pointing it at somebody and it was like, this camera became my passport into the unknown and into the lives of people that would wouldn't even tell their families their stories they would you know they wouldn't even this camera was powerful it was just me just the camera not a big production crew didn't know what the hell i was doing story of my life no fucking idea i still <laughs> i still do, I, honestly to be honest i i don't know how i pulled this shit off like movies i'm not a filmmaker i guess i made a few films now so um, and I'm not trying to underplay it. I'm, I literally don't know what aperture and I, I can't figure it out. My friend's been trying to tell me forever. You know, I kind of turn it on the green button and go. So it's like, I'm not trying to put myself down. I, I'm trying to explain it as it is. Like if I can do this, anybody can do this. So, so, yeah. so here's the deal, man. That was the moment. That was the moment for me when it really happened. When I realized my camera was my passport, every question that I had, about this phenomenon that includes UFOs, these mystical experiences that I've had with having my questions answered, the coincidences that I know you talk about a lot in my life. It was just something that needed to be explored and not written away. And that's what kicked me off. I went back to that moment when I was 13 years old and I was like, I want to know the truth about Bob Lazar. I want to know, is Bob Lazar telling it like it is. And I remember hearing George Knapp. So I very meticulously just quietly started contacting people and it was rough going. I, I'm, I'm no, nobody knows who I am. You know, why are they going to let me in their house with a camera? I remember it took two years for George Knapp to get back to me and you know, wow, what a good, what a, oh my God. Oh my wow. God. I didn't know that. Check this out, man. I wasn't pushy though. See, I'd ping him every six months or something. I'd hit him an email or, you know, call the station. And, you know, he's got a lot of layers of protection, that guy, because people, people try to get to him. Right. Yeah. So I, I remember this day where it was like, I had been filming with, I call him the godfather of conspiracy, John Lear. If you're going to go find the craziest stuff you've ever heard in your life and, and, and try to find the seeds of, of any wisdom in that, that's the guy to go to. I mean, just wild. Wow wild pol polarizing figure but you remember he was close with bob so that was kind of like my agenda my mission mm. was to just find out for myself if bob was telling the truth or not i didn't know i was going to make a movie on him had no idea i just knew that camera let me indoors you know so with george it was like for years i was reaching out like man i i, I put it i'm really i'm dedicated to this i, I filmed with john i, I really want to know more and you know at that time it just it took two years and then finally sitting in my carport, still making art. I don't know what that's about. I'm still making art. So I'm still doing paintings and shit with my wife and, you know, still doing some art shows, just weird. And I get this call. It's like, hold for George Knapp. And I'm like, wait, 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 hold on. Excuse me. Say it again. And they're like, hold for George Knapp. This is his producer. Hold for George Knapp. And I was like, okay, wait, wait, hold on. You're calling me back. And he goes, look, let me give you a piece of advice. I'm like, I'm all ears. And he's like, be precise, be brief, and know exactly what you want to ask. Hold for George. B. 
bang, right? I'm sitting there on the line for like two minutes, sweating bullets. Like I have paint and resin on my hands. I'm like, <laughs> this is so crazy to me. I'm like, okay, boom, this is George. And he still answers the phone like that. Even with phone, you know, ID call and he knows it's me on his cell, but he still answers the call like that. Yeah. This is George, right? I'm like, okay. I couldn't talk fast enough. Hi, my name is Jeremy Corbell. I've been really interested in Bob Azar's story ever since 1989. When you came out of it, I've been talking with John Lear. I've been filming with people. I've been going to this person, found this person, found that person. I don't know if you knew that this person still exists. I found that person. I really want some help. I just want a little bit of your time. I just want to know your perspective. You know, are they all making it up? Is this real? Is this not real? Can you clarify anything for me? I couldn't talk fast enough. <laughs> it was just like this long, uncomfortable silence. He probably was just finishing a sandwich. But I mean, it was like long and uncomfortable. That's how I remember it. And he goes, this deep breath. And he goes, all right, I'm going to do my part. Boom, just goes off for an hour. Just goes off. Kind of like tells me the dynamics, the social dynamics, how people got this wrong. They got that wrong. How this is true. We don't know about this. I mean, it was just how he put Lazar through his paces. It was wild. Wow. So that was kind of the beginning where I realized, all right, if he's going to do that and I keep doing this, you know, I'm going to find out. So I just dedicated my life to it, man. And, and again, I'm, was not a filmmaker. You know, I was just a dude with a camera that I used as like this way in. And then as history goes, you know, obviously George and I have, you know, become good friends and, and colleagues and, and we've broken stories together, big stories. You know, we broke the Nimitz uh, Tic Tac UFO case uh, prior to the New York Times yeah. um, on Coast Coast. So it's like you see these these things in retrospect and you're like, wow, it's, I, you know, I'm lucky. I'm lucky because I've had mentors in my life that have, you know, provided me with the, the stepping stones. You know, you have to do the work yourself. And yeah. don't people get that wrong all the fucking time. You got to do the work yourself. Well, let me interject here because this is a nice inflection point. That's a beautiful full circle you've created for us. And I love how it begins with you at 13, hearing Bob Lazar on the radio. And it ends with you making a film about him all those years later as an adult. There are some points in this odyssey that I want to go back to and ask more specific questions on. To begin with, the fact that you said that out loud in the way that you did... You made a specific point of that and that you hadn't shared that before. I find that to be a particularly fascinating detail in your life story. For anyone who's a mystical or esoteric practitioner, there's a conjuring quality to this detail, a spell, an invitational or invocational quality to stopping in that moment and declaring so consciously to whatever intelligence is out there that you are throwing down the gauntlet. In retrospect, do you feel like that was a truly defining decision? Was it incidental that you said that out loud emphatically in that way? Or was that a determining factor when you reflect on it? I knew this would be a different kind of interview. That's why I was excited about it. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, man. So, you know, I'm going to bypass my allergy to the unknown of my own life experiences. You know, I, I really do 
you know, I think I'm nuts and bolts. My family thinks I'm fucking nuts. So let's go into this, <laughs> you know, let's go into this. You know, it's funny too. I just want to comment. You, you said, so, you know, you, the, you know, and then we get the end of the story and you release the Bob Lazar film, which is obviously a big dream of mine to, to do is the dream. What am I going to do next? Am I still a filmmaker or something else? Yeah. But um, it's really just the beginning. So I'm going to answer your question, but before I do, because it relates to it is the biggest lesson that I learned and what I learned from all of that is that, and it, the words don't give it power until you've lived it. And I think it's, I think it's, if you can live it, it's amazing. It's, um, we are not the things that we do, you know, we are not defined by our occupation or, or even the things that we do. The things that we do are an ever expanding um, and interacting uh, force based upon what we are. Mm -hmm. So if you are curious, if you are happy, if you are mad, if you are uh, anything. Uh, we are these expressions. You know, we, 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 these expressions are from a core self. And so that was the lesson to me that I am not defined by what I do. What I do is defined by what I am. Mm. I don't know if there's a better way to say it, but that's the truth. Now, when we, when we realize that, then, then we realize that we can enact from this place in a variety of ways. And, and we have to be careful then where and how we spend our time. It's powerful when you put your will to something. And when, when, when you know you're on the right path, when, when you get nudges, confirmations, help, when you get help, it's amazing. Yeah. So, so to back to your point, I don't know, man, it, it was like, I, I had, you know, been into meditation because of martial arts, you know, started as a young kid's movement meditation, seated meditation, developed a, a, a form of, of, of yoga for, for athletes, for martial athletes. I wasn't a stranger mm. to these properties and these ideas, but I, I don't know who actually ever does it out of the millions of people yeah. that talk about it, whoever actually does it. So, you know, to be honest, it's probably the first and only time I was standing there alone and just, just fucking said it, man. You know, I asked, I asked, straight up asked. And it wasn't like I just got like, oh, there was a sign or, you know, smashed to the head. It was prof more profound than that. And, and it took me a while to recognize it. And, and, and life pushed me over that edge. It, it pushed me. It said, okay, you want to know if, if that's all you are? You got nothing more than how you're defined by the external world and you accept that? Well, let me strip everything that you think you are away from your physical body. How about that? Yeah. How about that? Yeah. So that's what happened. Didn't feel benevolent at the time, but now I'm so grateful. I think that's why I asked the question that way as well, because so many of the features of what you relate in this transformation are iconic identifiers within a shamanic initiation, including the fever. Uh, I, I wouldn't know. You don't know it, mm. but you lived it, you know, to put it this way, it begins with that spoken vocal call. You follow it diligently when the cues and orienting events happen, such as, hey, the country you can get into is Nepal. You arrive amid bombings. 
You contract a violent illness that kills nearly everyone afflicted with it. Those high fevers, often integral in shamanic experiences, almost like a global feature in esoteric traditions. The voices of the dead engage you. Ultimately, your experiences build through the stages, including you spontaneously making this iconoclastic art. It becomes explosively successful, unpredicted, unbeckoned by you, and then a camera becomes your passport. All of this culminating in the loss of identity as this pivotal fulcrum to this new reality, this new expression that you become. It all concords with so many shamanic initiations, entry into these age-old lineages. And I find it beautiful that you don't collect any of that in an ornamental fashion. You haven't held on to it. And I know these are not talking points that you get into in your work. And that's why I appreciate you talking with me about them, because I think that the inside of your life is remarkable. I knew it was going to be this fucking fantastic. There's no way this supernova of work that's come from you could not have tethering to these kinds of events. So... If you don't mind, I'd like to drill into one more feature in your saga, which is the voices of the dead, which you were hearing. Was there specific content? Was it directed to you personally? Did it feel atmospheric and random? Was it like a membrane had been dissolved between two realms? Or is there anything more that can be said about that moment? There, there is, there, there, there is. There, there's another story I've never told anybody because it's too fucking crazy. Um, Woohoo! Yeah, I guess we're hitting that today. Uh, look, <laughs> I, um, yeah, I, I, I will qualify all of this with, you know, I, I can't explain it. I've never tried. I don't talk about it. Uh, you know, it's not my area of expertise. You know, I'll probably learn more from your questions than than I will from saying this again. But um, so, so that that moment, I, I just attributed to to a fever. But I heard chimes. I remember that. I heard chimes. That was the first thing I heard. And <clears throat> next thing I heard, and I attributed all of this to fever, right? I still do to this day. I I, can, I don't know otherwise. So I hear these chimes, and then there was a student of mine who was a, a dear friend, a, a brother to me, trained with me for many years in my jiu-jitsu program, was one of my top ranking students, and he died very quickly in an accident. And I heard his voice. And I, I don't remember what he was saying. He was just talking with me. He was just talking with me. It wasn't like a call to action. It wasn't anything like that, but it, it was this realization that that couldn't be happening. Mm. And that's what made me kind of take stock of where am I? And I just, that's when I felt around me and realized I had been, I'd sweat out from the fever so much that I was in a, basically a pool of, of water in the bed. And uh, so, so that experience was just this realization that it, that couldn't be happening. So what is happening? However, this is a story I've never told. My wife, my wife knows it. Um, and I'll make it brief, but I, I think it relates to your question. Um, you know, talk about mystical experiences. I don't know what happens life after that. I, I don't know how we're all connected. I just, you know, I've heard things from people. Okay. 
Uh, I was at the height of my martial arts career. I was teaching and was at a forum where there were about 4,000 people watching me do a demonstration. And Bruce Lee's teacher, a man named Wally J, came out before my demonstration and said, you know, this is Jeremy Corbell. He's, uh, you know, faster than I've seen Bruce Lee. He learns faster. You know, give me big props. So everybody fucking hated me after that, right? Hated me. Because um, this dude, I don't know why he did it. You know, I mean, I knew him and he did teach me, you know, some. But it was just like this weird, mad props. So I kind of, you know, my head was big. You know, what was I, like 21 years old? Or something? I don't know. My head was big. I was like, whoa, that's cool, man. So mm. I started doing this demo and, you know, high flying kick, bam, 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 smack. You know, it was just a demonstration. And then I get home, I'm trying to make this brief, but it's just so weird. We're in no hurry. Okay. Well, so I get back to my place. And I'm kind of like high off that experience. I mean, again, I'm just kind of a dumb 21-year-old kid, right? Uh, still, I'm a dumb older person now. But, you know, at the time, it was, it was pretty, really dumb. So there I am. And I I find out that my other, one of my other senseis, this kind of icon in, in, the, in the martial arts, he helped bring jiu-jitsu to America. He was a Japanese-American named Sig Kufarov. This is old-style traditional martial arts, which is not what I studied primarily, but it was a part of my training. And he taught me the art of, you know, the healing arts, like uh, it's this old style of massage, Okazaki massage, whatever. He's the guy that, you know, really taught it to me. So I'd see him a lot before he died because he lived right by me and I'd work on him. He was like this big master guy. And I just, you know, I don't know, learn from him. Lucky I live close to him. So he died. And that day, same day as this big event I'm talking about, you know, he dies. I get a call from my primary sensei, you know, and he said, you know, look, when, when someone dies th and this guy was the most mystical individual I ever met. I mean, I know him since nine years old. I've never seen shit like with this guy. It's his life story, something else. But he says to me, you know, when, when someone in our circle dies, it's not uncommon for you to get a visit. And I'm thinking I'm 21 years old. I'm thinking, okay, okay. Sounds good. Okay. I'll, t I'll talk to you later. You know, just totally blew off what he said. Mm -hmm. I go to this coffee shop. Five minutes later, I'm there. And the weirdest experience of my life ensued. I, I probably the weirdest experience. I, and every, you know, God, I don't know how people will interpret this. Um, I see a dude has a beer, a beard and a beer by him. And he's sitting there. And I see my, a couple of my students and they're like, dude, that demo was crazy. Did you hear what Wally J said about you? You know, oh man, that's so cool. And I'm like, yeah, that's so cool. And I'm like amped up, you know, and I keep looking over at this guy on my left and he's just looking at me, but he's got big sunglasses on. Holy shit. I can't believe I'm telling the story. So he got big sunglasses on and I just, something in my head, I, I don't know how to describe it. It was like, come over here, <laughs> you know, but not like. A feeling it was weirder than that mm -hmm. okay so i walk over there it was like almost like um you know like the the air was sucked out of the room but we're, we're standing outside but it was just weird and so i i, I step over there and i look at him and he kind of like puts his hand like sit down okay i sat down i mean this is already really fucking weird right uh, without knowing it so i fucking sit down <sighs> all i can say is he, what I can say is that immediately I had this impression that it was like there was a thing that was trying to make, uh, 
trying to make the vocal cords move to represent sounds that would represent something I would understand in the form of words. Mm-hmm. It was so foreign, this moment. And I, listen, I, I didn't touch alcohol, didn't touch drugs, didn't touch anything. Like I was total straight edge jujitsu guy, right? Yeah. And I'm just here and he, he's trying to impose upon me to pay attention somehow because he's saying things that he shouldn't know. And it was just bizarre. So he like quoted verbatim this sentence I had said in this uh, demonstration I had just given. Something about, you know, enlightenment doesn't have to be like a brick to the head. It can happen over time. You know, and I was just talking about learning. I was just saying that like <sighs> enlightenment is a constant state of learning. You're either not learning or you're learning. Yeah. So that's all I was saying. It wasn't a spiritual thing, but he quotes it for me. And I'm thinking, oh, is this, was this guy in, the, in that? How could he have gotten here as fast as me? I left before everybody else. You know, all these things go through my head. Who, who is this guy? So I finally turned to him. I'm like, who are you? And he takes off his sunglasses. And I have never seen eyes like this before. I, I, I don't know. It, it's, it's like they were iridescent. Okay. It, it was, it was weird. It was really bizarre. And, and he just looks like as if I'm supposed to follow his eyes and he looks at the street. I turn my head to the street and all of a sudden the buildings and the, I remember the power lines, I'm getting goosebumps, man. I never told this. I'm getting goosebumps. Okay. So, so you probably know what this means. I don't know. So in the, in the power lines and the birds, and like everything went silent. And I saw with my eyes this sort of fabric vibrating representation of what I'm supposed to be seeing optically. And he and then I I I'm like shocked. I'm in shock. And I, I turn back towards him, thinking, oh God, I lost it, right? And he looks at me and he says, can you see? Then he puts his sunglasses back on and I start, who are you? Who are you? Have we met before? Who are you? Right? I I start going like that. And the guy just, I remember he never drank his beer. And I remember him saying, I'm just, I'm just a guy. I just live over there. He was trying to convince me nothing weird happened or something. And then he like kind of, he said, I'll see you around. And he got up and left. I'm sitting there kind of shocked, you know, and I see my students and I, I walk right back over and they're, they're probably 15 feet away, okay, 15 feet away. And I go, have you guys ever seen that guy before? Because the guy had just walked past them down the street. And they're like, what guy? I'm like, the guy I was just talking with, the guy 15 feet from you right there. The guy I walked away from our conversation to go talk with, that guy, that guy right there. And, and they're like, we, we, what, what do you mean? <laughs> you know, and they didn't say we didn't see anybody. They just had no idea what I was talking about. So I promptly ran the fuck home. I had this book where I write down ideas for martial arts, my next lesson for class, whatever. And I wrote down the words, you are not crazy or delusional. This happened. No matter what, never doubt it. And then I wrote what happened. And I had, I had not even thought about it until I was moving a decade later 
and saw the, the writing, you know, and my wife asked me, what's that? I was like, oh, I will tell you that story, you know? <laughs> so, um, but then since then, you know, she is, and I have both ex- kind of like your explanations with your wife, you all of a sudden there have been other events, but, but I, I don't know. I, based on your question, I would say that is the closest thing that I have to an experience that, that I can't explain. Mm. I know it happened. I don't know what it means. I know it was connected to, to death and I know it was connected to some sort of um, current that runs through me when I feel you know, powerfully creative, right? That current, that same feeling, I know when I'm doing the right thing because that moves through my fingers, through my eyes, through my words. And I, I don't know what it is. And I never really have to acknowledge it. It's just, it's either there, it's on today or it's off, you know, and it's on this month or it's off, you know, and I've learned not to be greedy about it in that there have been a good three year period. I called it the, um, the tsunami, you know, weird experience, just had this feeling and it. It's like the hourglass turned upside down uh, on my birthday. And it came back three years later on another birthday, just without even trying. I tried for three years to like get that back, that feeling. And just like an hourglass, somebody turned it back. And that was weird. So that's the experience that I have. And I did receive a call after by my sense. And he goes, did anybody visit you? You know. <laughs> and, 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 I, and I said to him, maybe. And he goes, what did, what did their eyes look like? And this is right before he died. I never really got to ask him what he meant or how he knew or, but anyway, so, so that, that's one of the things that I personally have experienced that I can't explain has nothing to do with UFOs, but yeah, man, something's up. It doesn't have anything to do with UFOs, but it has everything to do with consciousness or however we would like to characterize this mysterious sentient animating force that is present and available to us. I don't want to speak for you, but I can feel it coming through when you speak about spontaneously creating art for the first time, or when that disembodied voice arrived at such a pivotal moment in your fever, which broke the trance you were in that perhaps saved your life. Oh, it did. It did save my life. Yeah. Yeah. I know that. Okay. So the punctuation of all these events coming to fruition with the amazing experience that you just shared, it's one of the most beautiful experiences I can recall hearing in a long, long time. It's such an astounding, gorgeous experience. it, It has the clarion call of truth. And I love the poetry of how what was transmitted to you was so nonverbal. He turned your face to the environment, which was teeming with that enigmatic beingness that feels so authentic, a perfect culmination of the traditions that you were coming from. I want to thank you for sharing that. It just, it's, it leads to another question. People who experience these exotic events, whether they're UFOs or non-ordinary spiritual events, whatever it is, we tend to hold on to the strangest things that happen to us, even or especially when our vocation is the strange. One thing I find profound in your sharing the story in this setting is that you've had this robust career in the field. 
You've done milestone work again and again, delving high strangeness, and yet you've never told this story. But I admit, I have done the same thing. I, I don't share some of the strangest things that have happened to me. I can go on coast to coast with George and discuss mantis entities, but I still can't speak of certain other things. Yeah. Like what you described, you know, they're kept private. Maybe they're for you. I mean, that that's the thing. Like, you know, what's the difference of like UFOs? Do I want to know the truth or do I want to report the truth? What's what, you know, which one? So these experiences, why I've never talked about them is because I, A, I don't understand them. B, I know they're highly personal. I, I don't know if they're helpful to tell. Mm-hmm. It's helpful to me. And, and, and just to finish it, put a cap on that, you know, in retrospect, as I'm talking to you, I realize... I've only ever been asked two big questions um, in the context of what I just described to you was, you know, can you see? Oddly enough, the other kind of truly mystical experience that I had, I, I was asked, can you read? And it's so weird to me. And I you won't get into that one now, but it's just, yeah, man, maybe they're so personal. The next time you come on? We can get into that one. <laughs> yeah, sure, sure, yeah. Can you remind me of that? Can you read? That was crazy. Gonna... Someone was building a black army somewhere and they brought me in as the wide-eyed devil to teach their schools. There was a paramilitary group and I almost died. But um, yeah, I guess what I'm saying is these experiences are so personal. I don't know the value to someone else um, unless they've had something similar and they want to reflect on that. I don't know. I don't know. That's why I probably never told them. It's a great question. I can tell you it is valuable to me. That story moved me. It reverberated in registers that are spiritual and subtle. I got goosebumps several times. The body doesn't lie in that way. I would venture that many who will hear this are going to have similar somatic confirmations. Simply that the mystery is afoot. Yes. And just to have that simple confirmation is so meaningful. Which I think is a great segue to this facet of the paranormal the theatrical manner which carries so many of these non-rational or trans-rational qualities in which these phenomena interact with us. Put it this way, is there a theatrical form of art that some of these non-human entities use to shape us? Attending contact, sightings, abductions, there are these bizarre displays. One could say, Costumes, stagings, dramatic narratives. Yeah, it can be comical. Truly, it can. Um, Think of Harlequin figures, visiting kids, or the way people are shown films designed to impact emotion and psyche. Yes. So there's a real effort to manipulate our senses and perception. As an artist, do you feel that this intelligence behind such spectacles impacting our worldview Is that a form of art for them? If so, as storytellers ourselves, how do we best respond or relate to that kind of artist or artistry? I mean, to be honest, I I never thought about it that way. I I never thought about it being some form of of art form. What I can report is that after all the years and all the people that have come forward to me, you know, your average individual to high-ranking military individuals to high education, low education, across the board, around the world. I report on maybe 1% of that. Mm. And I report on the stuff that's easily consumable. There is not a single time when somebody has had what you call a close encounter, 
either with the UFO phenomenon or a, another phenomenon or part of the same, I don't know, where it the story hasn't been deeper, more personal, more bizarre, and more strange. People are reluctant to tell others about these aspects. Mm-hmm. A few things you've said, you know, watching movies. Um, yeah, I, I've gotten calls from soccer moms that are like, I don't want to be known. I don't want to be this to be told. I just want you to know what happened to me. And that's it. Yeah. And then they'll tell me. And they haven't even told their own family. So whatever is going on, this phenomenon that includes UFOs, I, I, I have to admit that now, that, that there's more to it. You know, that's, that's hard for me, but I learned that through Skinwalker Ranch and some of the other things I've reported on. There is something far deeper and connected and personal and uh, interactive going on. And when you stop labeling it, you know, that's a chair, that's an apple, that, you know, when you stop labeling it and start paying attention, it seems to want that interaction in some way. And it's playful, man. It, it's not malevolent typically. It, it, it appears to be playful. You know, there's good and bad. There's different masks it will wear. Is it an art form that's interacting? It, I mean, it's artistic. I mean, for sure. It's creative as fuck. I mean, these experiences people have and are continuing to have, some very physical and tangible, and others more, I don't know what you'd say, ethereal, they're happening. It's happening, whether we, we acknowledge it, like it or not. I don't know if that helps, but... It does help. I like that you mentioned Skinwalker Ranch because that's such a great incidence of it's not quite malevolent considering what that intelligence could have done to people, which it did not do. And there's a comedic element in which it constantly evades detection, interaction, or any replicable measurement. Yeah. And it did so with an extraordinary success. It's funny from a certain perspective. Probably not that night when you find four 2,000-pound cattle inexplicably jammed into a canister, but upon reflection, there are comedic qualities to it. I agree with you. There's an artistry in there somewhere. And I appreciate your relating that your perspective on this has migrated over the years, because I think that's a march many of us have been sharing. There's some commiseration Some of these bizarre facets remind us as artists, you know, we're filmmakers. We know what it's like to manipulate and shape. I mean this in a creative sense, yeah, not to distort people's perceptions. Yeah. But create beauty that communicates and evokes from human beings. And I feel this intelligence doing this. It makes me want to drill a layer deeper into the intelligence itself Some questions I'm asking feel obvious now, today, but I didn't think to ask them the first 20 years of being on this path. One of them is, do you feel that the paranormal evolves or that the intelligence inside these puzzles develops and grows? Yeah, it meets us halfway. So you do feel it changes and evolves? Oh, it's undeniably, I don't know if it changes and evolves, but the way it relates to human consciousness and individuals certainly has evolved, uh, verifiably has altered. 
and kind of met us halfway at each step. I mean, I can be very specific about that. Uh, the first time I ever heard of the idea that there is an intelligence or intelligences, you know, plural, that are performing uh, in a way very dramatically and interacting with consciousness was from actually Bob Bigelow. Bob Bigelow, uh, aerospace uh, mogul, as people know, if you know anything about this, if not, you know, Google the guy. But uh, it will be in the show notes. Okay, so B Bob Bigelow was the first time I, I really it sunk in. He was talking about the the performance at the at Skinwalker Ranch, and you know George could tell me a hundred times, and sometimes, you know, I'm not I'm thick gold sometimes. You know, he tell me something over and over and over, and it'll take years to register. But then hearing it from someone else like Bob Bigelow, I'm like, oh, I get it now. So this is that moment when I realized UFOs. You you call it the paranormal. You know, I, I'm more comfortable with abnormal because I, I, I don't know what paranormal means. Um, I know if something's abnormal to me, mm -hmm. you know, it's out of my norm. Uh, I probably just don't know the Latin root of the word. But the point being, whatever it is, I, I have come to the understanding, personal understanding, I don't try to push this on anybody else, that the UFO topic is encased within a much larger uh, phenomenon. And they, it appears to be uh, connected to the UFO phenomenon, but is not limited to that. Uh, the high strangeness, the close encounters, the entities, the uh, consciousness hijacking that was occurred on uh, that occurred on Skinwalker Ranch, mm -hmm. the the accounts of sentient mists, uh, you know these uh, all these things. Yeah, it's a pantheon. Uh, it's wild. So I would say. I have recognized now how little I know because I had to rip my methodology straight out of the nuts and bolts and then allow it to include things that are outside of that. We're not talking about hard physical craft like Bob Lazar with gravity wave amplification systems. We're talking about something weirder. However, it's related to the saucer phenomenon. Now, we have seen, as humanity, we have seen over the centuries, that the phenomenon, if we'll call it that for now, that includes UFOs, that it appears to interact with human beings at the place where, where we are at that time. To give a concrete example, in the 1800s, it was presenting to us airships more than saucers. I mean, saucers were there, don't get me wrong, but bizarre encounters with little people on these airships with propellers even, and 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 we didn't, they weren't flying around at that time. And then, you know, we come all the way up to present day with the Tic Tac UFO, this cylinder, not a, not a disc, a cylinder, although there was a disc under the water, but a, a cylinder that evades Commander Fravor and with his FAA-18 could not lock, it actively jammed his weapon system and it dogged him and it mirrored him. And then, boom, it instantly shot away. Now, that's different than an airship, right? So the phenomenon is, or I don't know if this is right, but it appears to be morphing with our understanding of technology. Now, these might be separate things. These might be totally separate things. However, I suspect that they're not because oftentimes with these crafts, there are these personal experiences that are not told often. So yes, the phenomenon 
if it is performing and it is interacting on every level, it meets us halfway. Now, it, does that mean that this is a control system, as Jacques Vallée would, would say? Is this some sort of <clears throat> educational initiation into understanding? I, I don't know. I have no idea. But it does appear that way. Now, have we gotten anything from it? No. See, that's the thing, too. There, there's a game being played. You know, have we really gotten anything from it? The witnesses are told things. A concrete example, the, I think it was South Africa, the, the, the kids at the school. Aerial school. Aerial school. Uh, I was able to have a, a weekend with two of the primary um, females who were closest to the beings and the craft. Before that, cool story, uh, Dr. John Mack, you know, head of Harvard Psychiatry, went down there with the BBC, did all these interviews. Yeah, very compelling, very cool. But when you talk to my two friends now, Salma and Liesel, when you talk to them, and you see how it's impacted their lives, that they're just now realizing that they were given a message. Mm. And maybe part of that was to convey that message. I mean, they don't know. Um, but when you talk to them and you realize what they're telling you, it happened to them. Mm -hmm. You got to ask, what is that about? Why would these little beings come on their little discs, project this movie-like thing into their heads of destruction about how we're not taking care of our earth. And this is pre-climate change, pre-all that, right? Yeah. What would be the purpose of that? Have we benefited from it? And the thing is, the answer is really concretely no. So so what what are what is happening? You know, are is this a benevolent thing that, that is trying to guide humanity? I mean, I'd like to believe so. But honestly, it looks more like catch and release. It looks more like play to them. Be sure to catch part two of our conversation with Jeremy Corbell. For more on Jeremy, go to extraordinarybeliefs.com. His films such as Bob Lazar, Patient 19, Hunt for the Skinwalker can be found on Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon. Michael Crichton's Exorcism True story. Michael Crichton sold over 200 million books. Many became movies, such as Jurassic Park. He created the TV series ER. Yes, he went to Harvard Medical School. You probably knew that. But did you know he also had a propensity for astral travel? He saw auras, had out-of-body experiences, he hired psychics and mediums, which was ironic because Crichton himself was a trained spirit channel. He was surprised how effortlessly channeling came to him, until he realized it was similar to the state he entered when writing his best-selling books and screenplays. But by far the best Michael Crichton story is that of his exorcism. In 1986, Crichton was doing deep work with his longtime spiritual teacher, Gary. After a particularly intense session, Gary said he detected an entity attached to Crichton, a dark entity. Gary felt this entity was interfering with their work. Crichton became extremely distressed. Gary said, don't worry, 
will remove it. Gary then asked Beth, a spiritual worker seasoned in such matters, to assist in performing an exorcism on Crichton. Beth, Gary, and Crichton all agreed, and soon after, the exorcism commenced. Once Gary had successfully guided both Beth and Crichton into a deep trance, Gary asked Crichton if he perceived anything around Crichton's body. Remember, Crichton could see auras, bend spoons. He was a trained channeler. What transpired next, Crichton details in his book Travels. Quote, To my surprise, I saw a cartoon demon, a sort of Walt Disney evil spirit with wings that looked like the devil from Fantasia. I saw this devil right in front of me. I also saw a sort of large bug, like an ant, down near my feet. And I saw a little man, about two feet high, with a hat." End quote. Although he perceived this triplet of bogies, Crichton was so unsettled, he lied to Gary and simply said, no, he detected nothing. Gary then went to Beth, asking, did she perceive anything around Crichton's body? Beth responded, quote, there are three entities around him. There is a large creature, an insect, and a little man, end quote. Now Crichton had never met this woman. When Gary asked Crichton the same question again, Crichton admitted, yes, he had been perceiving those same three entities, actually. Working deeper, they learned one of the entities had been created by Crichton himself as a child in order to protect him from his father and other threats growing up. It had succeeded admirably, but was no longer serving a purpose. Crichton felt such a lifelong bond to this entity that removing it took the group three and a half hours. The exorcism culminated in an emotional eruption. Although a writer, in his autobiography, after detailing the exorcism, Crichton never mentions what became of the other two entities. He simply recounts how they found three, removed one, and then nothing. He just leaves those unresolved threads dangling like angelic dingleberries. However, Aliens and Artists has a theory on the identity of at least one of those unexercised entities. We are referring here to the quote, little man about two feet high with a hat, which Crichton and Beth both perceived independently. Crichton's pen name was Geoffrey Hudson. That pen name refers to the 17th century royal court dwarf, Geoffrey Hudson. Crichton founded an ironic pen name because while Geoffrey Hudson, the royal court dwarf, was just under two feet tall, Crichton was about six foot nine. There is a famous portrait of Geoffrey Hudson, the royal court dwarf, by Daniel Mitens. It depicts Hudson with a large hat, conspicuously at Hudson's side, a two-foot dwarf with a large hat, just as Crichton and Beth saw during the exorcism. Was this his diminutive daemon? Check the show notes for a glimpse of the painting. Crichton passed away in 2008. Perhaps he and Hudson are still together somewhere, writing works in mediums we have yet to imagine. 
Hello, friends. Stuart here. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider becoming a patron. What happens with your money, you wonder? I take your donations and I go to the grocery store and I buy food for my daughters. They eat it because people have to eat to live, even some artists. So just go to stuartdavis.com, click on the Patreon tab, and thank you so much for your support. Okay, my name.